Good song choices. Thank you, Fellowship Band, for uh, accompanying us and helping us. So appreciate that. Turning your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. We're going to get right after tonight. I think God has a message for us from my favorite chapter in all of the Bible is Romans chapter 8. I, I would never say that it's the greatest chapter in all the Bible and elevated above another because it's all inspired, but this is my favorite chapter in all of the Bible, and uh, I'm going to continue on First Thessalonians Sunday night, a message that, that I think will really help our church, but I, I wanted to step away from that in this midweek service and uh, address just a group of my favorite verses that I've really wanted to study in a deeper way for a long time, and I, and I did the last couple of days. There's some announcements I want to make towards the end of the service, so I'll wait for that. I feel like we need to get right into the Word. Uh, tonight, but, but I see a lot of kids out here, so parents, thank you if you are uh, risking um, <laughs> your sanity to c- bring your kids to church that would regularly be in the nursery, thank you for doing that. And for those of us who hear some kids that are, might get restless and a little bit noisy, uh, we, we should bear with them with patience and know that, that they need to be under the sound of the Word of God no matter their age, and their parents do, and I sure respect parents who chose not to do that, that's just fine. Um, but for the parents that are here, thank you uh, for doing that. And uh, just know if, if they do get restless, we, we have a foyer, a big foyer. And uh, you can go out there, just, just make sure that you're not a distraction uh, out there if possible. Um, but man, we're thankful that you're here. The title of the message, as you see, is called Benefits Included. Read a story about a man by the name of Peter Deneka, who was a Russian immigrant who fled to America the year of 1911, to escape the communist revolution. He became a Christian shortly after arriving in Chicago. Then he went on to the Moody Bible Institute. And they say he was then powerfully used by God in both America and Russia in bringing many people to Jesus. He tells the great story about his escape from Russia. And I found this very interesting. His parents had sacrificed everything to get him on a boat. They bought him a ticket. To get him all the way to America. But he got on the boat with basically just a ticket. With virtually nothing. No money. Just a knapsack with a few clothes and a piece of stale hard bread that his mom had packed for him. And he said that throughout the entire journey he would look at everyone in the dining hall. Wishing that he could have some of the glorious meals that they were enjoying. Well some of the sailors told him that if he helped them with their work. That he could eat what they ate. Of course still very meager portions. But it was at least more than his moldy bread that his mom gave him. He said that it wasn't until the last day of the trip. That he realized that three full meals a day came with the purchase of his ticket. And he said this I quote. Because I couldn't read what was written on the ticket. I didn't know what I was entitled to. The young man missed out on the benefits that were included with the price of his ticket. The Apostle Paul indicates in Romans chapter 8 that many Christians live out their spiritual journey the same way. We know that receiving Christ as Savior grants us a ticket to heaven, but we don't fully understand sometimes all the benefits included in the price of that ticket. And so Romans 8 is written to remind us of the benefits we have through Christ. When we accept Christ, we get full salvation, benefits included. Now that that phrase, benefits included, is what you want to hear when you're talking with your new boss about your 
compensation package. You want to hear him say, this is going to be your salary and benefits will be included. You're blessed if you have a job that offers those kind of benefits. And we're going to read in verses 31 through 39 of Romans chapter 8 how Paul gives us five rhetorical questions so so as to teach us what comes as a benefit when you are in Christ, when you are saved. By the way, I hope you haven't gotten over your salvation. I hope that, that when we sang Jesus Messiah, the rescue for sinners, that you couldn't help but think the day he rescued you. I hope that's not old to you. I hope your heart's not cold tonight. If it is, this will be a great reminder. It might heat you up just a little bit. Before we can get into our text, we got to look at the first phrase of verse 31 where our text begins. It gives us some context. Look at the first phrase of verse 31. What shall we then say to these things? What does Paul mean by these things? Well, he's referring to the couple of verses written before verse 31. We all we know that every text has a context, and the text can't be divorced from its context. So in order for us to really appreciate uh, R- Romans 1, verse 31 through 39, we've got to understand at least a summary of verse 29 and verse 30. Look at verse 29. You know the verses. For whom he did for no, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. Now Paul in these few verses, he's not meaning to have a theological discourse about the foreknowledge of God, the predestination of the child of God, the justification and the glorification. He's really just giving us a summary. In other portions of the book of Romans, he really dives into that, especially even in chapter 9. But there are four words we need to, or five words we really need to focus in on to get the context and appreciate the latter verses, beginning with foreknow. When we look at the word foreknow, it doesn't just mean that, that, that God knows facts beforehand, though he does. It simply means he knows someone. He knows them. He has a relationship with them. In this case, Paul is saying God foreknew or he set his love on us before we even existed. Do you understand that? That God knew when you would be born, where you would be born, to whom you would be born, where you would live, what color your skin would be, what your DNA would be, what your fingerprint would be, what type of blood you would have. He's your creator. And before you ever came out of your mama's womb, before you were ever conceived in your mom's mama's womb, God foreknew you and loved you. And he goes another step further and he says predestinate. That word means not just to foreknow, but to determine something beforehand. Well, what did God predetermine about those he foreknew or loved from the beginning of time? Here's what he predetermined according to verse 29. He predetermined that we would end up looking like Jesus. Paul is saying that before time began, God has this purpose for you and I to be changed into the image of his son. Now study the Bible with me. If you're not studying the Bible with me, if you can't remember this two minutes after I say it, you're not thinking. you got to get this. So, so we need to, like, I feel like there's some glaze in the eyes. Are, are, you, are you with me? Say amen. amen. Then he used the word called. That word called, if you're saved, at some point God called you. God drew you to himself. God He got your attention by way of the preached word of God, by way of the gospel being presented to you, by way of the drawing of the Holy Spirit. Now, don't get me wrong. You still had a free choice. 
as to whether you answered the call. He didn't choose that for you, but you didn't come to him on your own terms. He came to you. He called you. He drew you, and if he wouldn't have drawn you, you wouldn't have came. And so he called you. And when you answered the call and got saved, the next word is justified. When he saved you, he forgave you every sin, removed the guilt from that sin, and justified you in the eyes of God. That's referring to how God sees you. He sees you, we'll talk about this later, through Jesus, his sinless son. So God sees you just like he sees Jesus, as if you'd never sinned. It's a glorious truth we'll elaborate on later. But then he ends with glorified. This is the final stop on the destination. To be glorified means to have all of our sin eradicated and to be made perfect in body and soul. It literally means we will become like Jesus. What's astounding about how Paul worded this glorification is that he writes it in the past tense. But none of us, and those he was writing to, we're not glorified yet. Meaning, here's what Paul's meaning. Your glorification is as good as if it's already done. It's a sure thing. If you've been called, you answered, got saved, you've been justified, then it is a sure thing. You will be glorified. Now let's put it all together. God foreknew you. He predestined you to be conformed to the image of his son. So then he called you. He justified you and will eventually glorify you. What does all of this mean? This, in, in in, in a package, is God's unalterable purpose for your life. To save you to sanctify you, and ultimately to glorify you. Now Paul says, what shall we say about something so good? What does this mean to us? In other words, let me, Romans, let me elaborate more on what this truth means for your life. He goes on to explain through five rhetorical questions that when it comes to our salvation, benefits are included. You're not just given a ticket to heaven. Oh, you're given a ticket to heaven. If that was all God gave us, that's more than enough. But we're going we're gonna to be taught that he gives us a pretty good benefits package as well. And it begins in verse 31. What shall we say then to these things? Here's the first question. If God be for us, who can be against us? I'd phrase the question this way. If an all-powerful God has purposed your good, why should you fear opposition? Now follow me. He's not saying that no one will ever oppose us. Just that nothing that opposes us can thwart God's good purposes for our life that he mentioned in verse 29 and 30. I know that some of you came into church tonight having been opposed even today. Opposed by a bad boss or an antagonistic spouse or, or some inward struggle nobody else knows about or an addiction or a chronic health problem or a difficult child. Paul is not saying that the Christian will not experience opposition. It's just that no opposition overcomes the Christian. Because while the struggle he faces uh, is real and, and they're big, the God behind him is even bigger. Okay, l- l- let me paint this picture in your mind. This is how I think of it. Growing up, I always felt safe around my dad because I assumed my dad was omnipotent, all-powerful. Didn't take me long to figure out he wasn't. But in the days of my oblivion, I thought he was. I didn't think my dad was scared of anything. He wasn't scared of bees. He wasn't scared of snakes. He wasn't scared of the boogeyman. 
He wasn't scared of the dark, nothing. And he was strong. As, as an eight-year-old boy, I was positive my dad could whoop your dad. The bottom line was that anytime I was around my dad, I felt safe. Not because there were no dangers, but because I assumed my dad was bigger than the dangers. The way to overcome fear in your life uh, in regards to the opposition that you face is not to isolate yourself from all dangers because that's impossible, but to believe the purposes of God and the promises of God who is stronger and bigger than the dangers you face. Salvation then comes with the benefit of God's protection. That's why God, David said in Psalms 23, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Now hold on. How could a man who knew the dangers of the valley like David a shepherd did, how could he say that he would not fear? Because he said, Thou art with me. My dad is bigger than my dangers, David said. For some of you, your whole strategy in life is staying out of the valley. But that won't work. At some point, you're going to go through it and face opposition, but you can live there without fear because the God that saved you is with you and for you. That's a great benefit to salvation and protection. Paul goes on to ask the second question in verse 32. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? I'd phrase the question this way. If God gave up his most precious possession to save you, why worry about any of the rest of your needs? Follow me, please. They say that the value of something is shown by what someone is willing to pay for it. Did you hear me? The value of something is determined by what someone is willing to pay for it. So Joby Martin, in his book, calls it the eBay rule. He says, you may have something in your house that you feel is really, really valuable. That's great. So he says, put it on eBay and you'll find out that it means about $6 to everybody else. He says, so the collector's edition of VHS Rambo tapes you think are such a collectible or that Nicholas Cage pillow you have is not worth as much as you think it is. I mean, have you ever been to a garage sale where everything was priced ridiculously high? I mean, they were sentimental, so they thought it was valuable. But I ain't giving a $120 for your great-grandpa's golf clubs. Just because he played with them doesn't mean I value them. The, the value has, the value something has is determined by what someone is willing to pay for. Now think about that in terms of how much God values us. He sacrificed his only begotten son, the verse says, to redeem us. I would say if that you're willing to pay your son for the sins of mankind, you probably really value mankind. God has placed a big price tag, a high price tag on every one of us. And that should change the way, Paul says, that we perceive his ability and willingness to provide for us. Okay, I'll reason with you like Paul did by way of question. Why would God rescue you from sin but not give you help in your marriage? Why would God supply his Holy Spirit for you but withhold wisdom for how to parent? Why would he turn his back on his own son for you, then leave you out high and dry during a financial crisis? It's okay, Leroy. Hang in there, buddy. Why would God, watch, put this kind of investment into your life and not supply you what you need to accomplish his will? It's illogical. Paul makes complete sense. If Jesus died for you, then he'll provide for you. So what are you worried about? 
What's keeping you up at night? Go read John 3.16. He proved how much he values you by what he spent on you. And he'll take good care of you. That's the benefit of provision. Paul asked a third question in verse 33. I love this. Are you enjoying this study? This is rich. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. I'd phrase it this way. If God accepts you, whose disapproval should you fear? Now, now let me break this down because this is a little bit confusing at first. He talks about who shall lay anything to the charge of the elect. In other words, who, 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 shall, who shall condemn or, or, or judge God's people, the saved ones, his elect? Well, God justifies. God has accepted you. Watch here. God has accepted you because he's justified you. Follow me. When, God has, when I'm talking about God's justification, it's the way he sees you. As if you had never sinned. Now how's that possible? You're a sinner. Well, it's possible because he sees you through his sinless son. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. This is the verse that Jesus Messiah is based on. The psalm we sang. For he, God, hath made him, Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we may be made the righteousness of God in him. And all God's people said to that verse. In our Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. The way God sees you, watch, through the sinless Savior, his Son, should inform you of the fact that you are accepted by him. Therefore, Paul says, who shall lay anything to the charge of the elect? Why fear what man thinks of you or what man says about you? Why worry about man's approval when you have the approval of the God of the universe? Now, I'm not saying that you stop caring entirely about what people think of you. I think maybe one of the most immature statements we can make is, I don't care what anybody thinks. That's foolish. It's anti-Bible. We have a testimony to protect and people to love. But so many Christians are out of balance and are absolutely consumed by the opinion of man and live for the approval of man because they've forgotten that at salvation they were totally approved by the God of all eternity. Now I know if you struggle with feelings of, of inadequacy because of things that people have done to you in the past or, or said to you or about you in the past. Listen, I'm not all implying that, that you just memorize Romans 8 and those feelings will magically disappear. People are too complex for that. The issue's deeper than that. I'm telling you that at the core of overcoming this is the realization that you have a heavenly father who approves of you, who thought you were worth saving, has justified you in his sight, and has declared a purpose over you greater than what anyone else thinks or says about you. Here's the truth. Your identity, oh, please get this. Your identity is established by what the most important person in your life thinks about you. Did you hear me? Your identity is established by what the most important person in your life thinks or says about you. So who's the most important person in your life? If that person is you, then every time you look in the mirror, you'll be disappointed. If that person is your spouse, your kids, your parents, your boss, your girlfriend, your boyfriend, you'll always struggle with feelings of disapproval. That's why we as Christians have to regularly reestablish God as the most important person in our life. That's why you need to realize that you are who he says you are. 
And that's what really matters. That's one of my favorite choir songs that says, who the sun sets free is free indeed. I'm a child of God. Yes, I am. In my father's house, there's a place for me. I'm a child of God. Yes, I am. I am chosen, not forsaken. I am who you say I am. You are for me, not against me. I am who you say I am. So much for those independent fundies who say that new songs are shallow based on the truth of Romans chapter 8. And this is not about some weird pop psychology or power of positive thinking where you stand in the mirror and pump yourself up about how much God loves you. This is the inerrant inspired word of God. He is for you, not against you. He has accepted you as one of his children. I was studying for a test to officiate for high school soccer and I was trying to train and get ready for the online test and I was watching on YouTube a couple of the videos and I ran by, you know how YouTube suggests videos when you're watching another. And so I, I clicked on that video because it looked interesting. And it wanted to teach you something about sportsmanship by showing you an example of unsportsmanlike conduct by a coach, a little league coach. It's actually a junior high soccer coach. You watch the video and the junior high soccer coach told his, one of his defenders, I want you to mark their best offensive player, the striker, the forward. And when he touches the ball, you do whatever you have to do to keep him from shooting it. I don't even want him to have one shot on goal. And no matter the cost, don't let him do that. He was pretty successful and played decently clean the whole game. And then at the very end of the game, they show that, that the striker uh, made a run. Uh, and, and the mid, middle infielder uh, passed him a through ball. And it touched that striker's foot. And right when he was about to go to have a shot on goal, that defender, that little kid who the coach said, do anything that it takes, put his cleats up like this and cleated the back of this kid's leg and, and threw him on the ground. And, and the defender got a red card, which means he got ejected. Parents came running out onto the field. The kid that got cleated was bleeding. He got to get dragged off the field. And, 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 and the, the visiting coach, the, the one whose, whose kid got hurt, was livid. And you know what the video showed? The video showed the defender who cleated the kid wasn't worried at all about all the boos and all the parents and all the dirty looks. You know who he looked at? His coach. Now this is a negative example, but it, but it proves a powerful truth. He didn't care about all the voices so long as he was approved by the one that mattered to him the most. And I think Christians are caught up with all the voices on social media. All the voices on the news channels. All the voices at school. All the voices on the team. All the voices in the break room. What does she think of me? What does he think of me? When we need to fasten our eyes on the throne room of God and be worried only, and well, be worried mostly about, about, about the opinion of the one who matters the most to us. This is so good. Paul says that with salvation comes the benefit of protection. If God be for us, who can be against us? The benefit of provision, if God sent his son to die for you, he'll provide for you. The benefit of acceptance, if God approves of you, that's all you need. And notice the fourth question in verse 34. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. I would phrase the question this way. Would you hang with me? If Jesus, the judge, died in your place, how could you feel guilt? This is the truth of the gospel. You understand this is not necessarily for a lost person. 
This is for the saved person to wrap their mind around the benefits of their salvation. John 5.22 tells us that God has committed all judgment to the Son. Look at the verse on the screen. For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the what? The Son. That means everyone will stand before Jesus. And that means, watch here, we've we, we got to logically reason this out. The one who will judge me one day is the one who died for my sins. The one who sits on the throne of judgment has already borne my punishment. The great judge is the same one who has already been judged in my place. What does that mean? When I stand before the judge one day, and I will, he will not be able to condemn me. He will not be able to determine my verdict as guilty because he can't. You know why he can't do that? Because he bears in his body the proof of my justification. So for my judge Jesus to condemn me would be to deny himself and the work that he accomplished for my salvation. Here's what I'm trying to say. I don't have to be overwhelmed by guilt and fear of standing before God one day in condemnation because the one who who determines my fate, the one I stand before, happens to be the same exact one that loved me enough to die for me. And if he died for me, he's got my back. I heard a preacher give a really good illustration that makes this principle clear. He had an iPhone because he was a man of God. It was having problems. Only one out of every million iPhones have a problem. He was that one. So he took it into the Apple store to get worked on. Before he did, he looked up the terms and conditions of his warranty. And he read up completely and he noticed, sure enough, I, I meet the conditions and the terms to get my phone replaced or repaired. But he was still nervous to his testimony. He, pres- he, he came up with this five, six-minute case of what he was going to tell the guy at the Genius Bar in the Apple store because he knew how much it would cost him if, if this warranty didn't go through. And so he, he prepared basically a, a thesis for this thing. And so he went in there, and, and he went to this, this guy that helped him out, and he laid it out. He made his case. And the preacher said about three minutes into his presentation, the Apple representative stopped him and said, just so you know, I go to your church. And instantly the preacher was relieved. He said, so you know I'm not lying, right? You know I'm trustworthy, right? And the preacher said, here's the point. It helps knowing that the one in the position to make the final judgment knows you and likes you. And the same is true in our final judgment in eternity. We don't have to be overwhelmed with guilt about that day. Knowing that the judge is the one who loved us enough to die for us. He's not out to get us. He died so that we wouldn't have to be condemned. I don't know if you're wrapping your mind around this, but I always got this picture growing up that we're going to stand in like a, a line in heaven for a million years until it's your turn to be condemned. That's not the Christian's fate. He sees us through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one that judges And he can't condemn us because he's forgiven us. He can't condemn us. He's died for us. He can't condemn us. He's justified us. Now, there's a couple reactions to this. First, people think, well, if it's that easy, then I can live however I want. Well, Paul said earlier in Romans chapter 6, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. 
How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Hey, the truth of our justification through Christ should not give us liberty to live however we want. It should motivate us to live to a greater degree of holiness so that we may glorify him more for what he's done in our life. Then there's the other side of the coin. And another reaction that's just the opposite. And sometimes people, they won't take advantage of God's grace, but they can't accept God's grace. They said, if if it's that easy, I can't buy into it. I know God's forgiven me according to the Bible. I can't forgive myself. Well, my answer to that is this, and I've told this to many people. So you think you're greater than God. No, no, you think your opinion of you matters more than God's opinion of you. You're going to condemn yourself when the great judge of heaven doesn't even condemn you. Now, I understand to be overwhelmed with guilt is somewhat natural as human beings. We're sinners, but it's not logical based on the truth of Scripture. Hey, I'm not at all saying that you shouldn't feel conviction about your sin, but you don't have to be overwhelmed with guilt. Conviction comes from God. Guilt doesn't. Conviction is feeling bad about something you have or haven't done. Guilt is feeling bad about who you are and how you think you're perceived by God. Conviction is connected to your actions and it leads to repentance in the case of Peter. Guilt is connected to your identity and it leads to despair in the case of Judas who hung himself. Paul is saying you don't have to be overwhelmed by guilt because your judge has already paid the price. Mercy. The amens are getting fewer. I'm preaching hard. Through salvation, we have the benefit of protection, provision, acceptance, and then that teaches us peace. Paul closes with one final question in verse 35. My favorite of all. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? I would phrase the question this way. If you can't be separated from the love of Christ, is there really anything to fear? You see, in verse 35, Paul gives a list of things that might possibly make us feel like God doesn't love us anymore. Tribulation and distress and famine, etc. And isn't it true that we can go through things so difficult in life that we do feel abandoned by God? And I think Paul gives that list so as to recognize that that's a reality. And and then he, he almost sympathizes with us even more during tribulation and peril and famine and the sword and all of that, when he writes verse 36, which seems to be out of place, but it's really not once you study it. Look at verse 36. As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Now, how does that go in all of this? Well, in my study, I found out that Paul's using a teaching technique common to the rabbis of his day. And I don't expect you to remember this. You don't need to, but it's called remez, R-E-M-E-Z. They would sing one lyric of a popular song in some cases, or a psalm, and then their, the, the listener's mind would sing the rest. So, so if I employed that in tonight's message, I would sing something like this, Amazing Grace. I don't even have to sing the rest, but in your mind you're singing what? How sweet the sound. That's what Paul's doing. And the song he chose to use to relate with the people feeling abandoned from God and separated from the love of God is found in Psalms chapter 44, which was a song of lament written at a dark time in Israel's history when it seemed like God had forsaken them because of their sin. Israel's enemies were all around them, crushing them. And so the psalmist asked God in Psalms 44 if he's, if he's taken his eyes off of them forever. And when Paul uses that technique, he doesn't leave them hanging. He says, Has God abandoned you? Has God led you out like a sheep to the slaughter? He gives them an answer, and it's a resounding no in verse 37. 
In fact, that's the word he starts verse 37 with. He said, nay, or no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Can we get some amens as I read this? Let me know you're alive. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, he doesn't stop there, nor height, nor depth, nor any creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Some of you are living in Psalms 44 right now. You feel like you're living in the dark, separated from God and his love, and he's not paying any attention to you. You feel like a lamb led to the slaughter by by the God who's supposed to be your shepherd. And you are precisely the person Paul is writing to. Your Psalms 44 is a lie. He, He has not led you to the slaughter. He has not abandoned you, and the lie of your Psalms 44 needs to be swallowed up by the truth of Romans 8. You are more than a conqueror, he says. He didn't say a conqueror. He said more than a conqueror. John Piper, a great author, explains it well. A conqueror defeats his enemy, but one who is more than a conqueror dominates his enemy. A conqueror nullifies the purpose of his enemy. One who is more than a conqueror makes the enemy serve his own purposes. A conqueror strikes down his foe. One who's more than a conqueror makes his foe his slave. Here's what Paul is saying. God will not only deliver us from our suffering, whether that be now and in heaven. He will deliver you from suffering. But he will make our suffering serve his purposes. God will transform, watch here. He will transform your struggles into the servants of his purpose. Thus Romans 8, 28 That he works all things together for good to them who are called according to his purpose. What the devil means for evil, God can take and use for good because you are more than a conqueror, not in your own strength, not because you read a good book, not because you listen to Christian music, not because you go to Good Baptist Church three times a week, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So persecution and famine and sword of demonic powers and maybe I should say this, a bad boss or difficult kids or chronic illness or, or, or betrayal. Listen, because you're more than a conqueror, those just affect your situation. They can affect God's purpose for your life. Thus, Paul says, you have nothing to fear. While you're going through Psalms 44 moments, and you feel left alone and abandoned by God, you need to anchor yourselves back to Romans chapter 8 and let those, those fears of abandonment and separation be swallowed up by the truth that if you are more than a conqueror, you'll be okay. Man, I love that. What a benefit of salvation through Christ. We are eternally loved. So let's not be like Peter Deneka, that's how you pronounce his name, who missed out on everything his ticket offered him, who sat around eating moldy bread when all the while he had the benefit of eating three good meals a day. What am I saying? We aren't meant to get saved and then live our our Christian lives wandering around in a wilderness eating moldy bread, dragging ourselves to church, manufacturing joy 
slapping a smile on our face. Our salvation comes with more than a ticket to heaven. It comes with a luxurious, lavish, wonderful benefits package. And I will review as I close. Here's your benefit package. Through Christ, we have protection. If God be for us, who can be against us? Through Christ, we have provision. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with with him also freely give us all things? Through Christ, we have acceptance. Who shall lay anything to the charge of the elect? It is God that justifieth. Through God, we have peace. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. Yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God right now making intercession for us. He's got our back. Through Christ, we are eternally loved. Who can separate us from the love of God? Absolutely nobody or nothing. Because in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. May we never lose sight of everything we have in Jesus. If you're like me, and it's not because I'm spiritual, it's because I studied this sucker, then I was overwhelmed with the benefit package that Christ offers me for free. See, when you go to work and they, they, they say benefits are included, you've got to work for them. But I was reminded I didn't have to work for any of this. I didn't have to do a single thing. And yet sometimes as a Christian, I still drag around. Sometimes as a Christian, I still get grumpy. Sometimes as a Christian, I'm still cantankerous. I get so caught up in my Psalms 44 moment that I totally forget Romans 8. And then to know I didn't have to do a single thing to get that and to know that he never takes it away even while I'm dragging around, what a God. And if you're like me, you simply want to say, thank you, Lord for saving my soul. I want the instrument is to come. I want you to play through Jesus Messiah again and maybe we'll sing it even better even though you sang it great. We'll sing it even better to close our service. Before we worship that way, I want us to worship privately at an altar. So if you're compelled to thank God for the wonderful, awesome benefits of your salvation, then you do so. Would you stand to your feet? I'll pray as you come. Father, I sure love you. What a God you are. What a God you are. I'm sorry for the times when I've lived as though I was broke, when I'm so rich. I lived as though I had nothing when I had everything. I was down in the dumps, but I was still more than a conqueror. Thank you, God, for giving that to me. Thank you for never taking it away. Thank you for such a great truth that reminds us saved ones, us elect, us that are called and justified. Of everything we have in you, may we never lose sight of the great gift of salvation.